The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Maz and Juan. Uh, I'm Maz. And I'm not Juan, actually. Yeah, we have Andrew Jones from The Intercept, who's guest hosting for Juan this week, who's out of town. Another black man also in the office, too. Right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, the subject for this week's podcast is mental health, especially in minority communities. And we're very lucky to have, uh, very lucky to have Terrell Starr on, who wrote recently a very moving article on BuzzFeed about his own issues with mental health. And as well as Anjani Balaratnam, who's a human rights researcher and investigator who's with us today. So, uh, Terrell, want to bring you in first. You wrote a really interesting article in this week on, you know, your own issues with mental health and your struggle, as well as, you know, how you came out of that. I'll let you give us some background on what this article was and how it came about. Yeah, definitely. I wrote a piece on BuzzFeed about overcoming my suicidal ideation, which I experienced more than a year and a half ago. And I wrote this piece to explain people the process of what it really takes to come to a re- to the reality that I needed help and the fact that I did not have the ability or the skill set to handle this issue on my own. And I also wanted to talk about the stages of denial that I experienced as well. So to give you some background on it, I was working at a mid-sized website about a year and a half ago when I had all of these thoughts in my mind about killing myself, and I experienced a lot of anxiety attacks, and what they are, at least in my case, was I. there were moments when my mind was going away from me. I didn't feel like I had full control of my thoughts and faculties, and they were extremely painful physically, and my chest would tighten up. I would sometimes have thoughts of and plans of killing myself without really, really being able to stop it. So I would wake up in the mornings just waking up and it would take me hours. And sometimes I didn't feel like I had the ability to get out of bed. My sheets felt like they weighed a ton. I felt like I couldn't move covers over myself. Sometimes I felt so weighed down in my mattress that I felt like I weighed a thousand pounds and I only weigh, you know, and, and, and I don't, you know, don't weigh nearly that much, obviously. But I was very fortunate that uh, in the middle of my plan, the final stages of my suicide plan, I actually received an email from a friend and she asked me for help. Well, I, she asked me how I was doing and I told her I needed some help. It was one of the rare moments where I feel like I had my full faculties in place. And so she just said, hey, Terrell, I love you. I hope you're okay. And let me get you some help. And she got me in contact with a good friend of hers who is a mental health advocate. He lives with bipolar disorder and met with him that weekend. And he helped me to begin the stages of looking for a therapist. And I went to a therapist. I went to a therapist uh, a week later after interviewing about seven or eight of them over the phone in my process of realizing all of the childhood trauma that I experienced really caught up with me when I was in my early 30s. And it was something that I didn't realize would impact me. Issues in childhood trauma and abuse I endured as a teenager and as a kid some 20 years later. And it was really difficult accepting that. 
Yeah, so Terrell, you know, I've definitely known you for a few months now. I really, really consider you not only as Sean Colley, but even, you know, a, a really good friend now, I would say, man. And a lot of the details here, I didn't know yet. And, and especially in regards to the childhood angle and how this was brought up and how it led to the build up towards this. Like, would, would you say, like, during that time is when that really started for you in regards to that process of, of how you felt about yourself and about your life? Absolutely. So when you grow up in a house with, like I did, that was extremely violent and you grow up where you have the values are based on if someone disrespects you, you shoot them. doesn't matter who they are. And doesn't mean shoot them. When you pull out your gun, you kill them. And those were the values that I saw when I was 11, 12 years old. And my uncles were the primary male father figures in my life. And this is how they behaved. When there was a conflict, I saw them get their gun. They stuck it in someone's face and they dealt with it. There was no discussion. No one said, I'm going to do this. They just put out their gun and said, next time I'm going to shoot. And so these are things you witness. And when I was growing up, I really did not see myself as one of those kids who who wanted to be uh, a gang, you know, a gangster. I don't think any kid does, but I was when I was a kid who did well in school, but I grew up in this environment where violence reigned supreme. And I tried to fight that. My Where did you grow up to? Which Detroit, city? Michigan. Detroit. I grew up yeah. in inner city Detroit, West South Detroit, Michigan. Mm. So my uncle sold drugs. And I saw it all the time. I would be boiling a hot dog, whatever food I was cooking on the stove, and they would have their crack, their cocaine, and they would be doing it right in front of me, you know, uh, preparing it right in front of me. One of my uncles got addicted to it. And I spent about five years, six years in the house with a, a drug addict, and that's a very horrible experience. And yeah. it got so bad. Um, so it definitely started there because, you know, when you hear all, you experience all this verbal abuse and emotional abuse, people telling you, you know, fuck you, you're not shit. And he's saying very sexually explicit things towards my grandmother, his mother. These things become normalized because you see it all the time. And so my only escape was school. and But I would have to go back home. And when I went back home, I had to confront the fact that this guy who was a drug addict may be violent. And it got to the point where when I was 12, once my one of my uncles died, my my grandmother gave me a 357 and said, you're the man in this house now. So if somebody comes at us, you got to shoot. And I learned as I get, I learned how to shoot by shooting her 22 into the bushes. And so just in case I had to shoot someone for real, I would be used to squeezing the trigger. And it just got to the, it got so bad to the point where I almost killed my uncle. And it happened twice. You know, one thing in the piece, it didn't say how many times I tried to shoot him. It was twice, at least, that I remember. It's so hazy. Um, but... That, I never really talked to anyone about that because, again, it was just so normal. And people don't realize when you say normal. It was normal for me to see violence. It was, un, and, and it framed my morals. And it was very, I was very fortunate to have teachers at school who helped me to see a different life. And I, when people see me, kind of like the surprise that you were talking about, Andrew, was, uh, I don't carry myself as somebody who kind of lived that life, per se. And, 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 I, and I just didn't, but it, it was always there with me. Uh, I was somebody who was 12 years old and I was going to kill someone. And it really frames a lot about how I cover news and how I look at things. So you mentioned that uh, a lot of this was suppressed until your early 30s. Correct. So there was a long period of time where it wasn't in the front of your mind and you didn't really, you know, yeah, 
So what, what, is this suppressed for all those years or like, is it something that you felt a low level of stress or how did it affect you until the point where it really started to... You know, man, I didn't... One of the things that, just as a personality, I know how to be outgoing and I can speak and I worked in public radio. So I know how to do... I know how to be articulate and to be outgoing for my job. But I'm a very quiet and kind of laid back person. So, you know, I have friends. I can, you know, guys, I can kind of roll out with and I'm just myself. But generally speaking... You know, I'm pretty much to myself, and I, as a kid, you always have to remain, you always have to show yourself as a symbol of strength. You can't show any weaknesses or vulnerabilities. And when I showed a vulnerability when I was a child, my uncle, he had this thing he used to do to me, and I'll be a kid, and he was a rather large guy, and so he would take his hand, put it over my head, and he would like, you know, he would hit it like that, you know, repeatedly, just so I could just be tough. And the thing about it, when I look back on it, he really, people would consider that abuse, but based on what he knew, that's how he knew how to take care of me. That's what he That's what I. he had to do in order to survive. And I had other people who would do things to me that would really tough me up that I thought were abusive, but I really could not talk about that because I was always taught the code of, you have to be, you have to show yourself as a symbol of strength. You yeah. can't be weak. And me opening it up and talking about that would make me feel and come across as weak. Even when I left that environment, I carried that mentality with me. Yeah, and, then, and that also ties into the whole black masculinity thing, especially yeah. in, like, growing up in hoods and in, in, yeah. in, in the U.S., because, you know, same thing in telling, dealing with and growing up in Bed-Stuy, like, in Brooklyn with me, mm-hmm. and seeing that perspective, though, wasn't on that level of, like, in terms of my uncles, like, using me, but seeing how they dealt with street issues, and then also seeing... Like, two of my uncles deal with their own drug issues mm-hmm. and then having that covered up until one of them passed, man. And and, and and you mentioned in regards to having this relapse in the back yet for so many years because, you know, you're one of the few black people to go to Ukraine and live in Ukraine, man. And when you were doing that Fulbright Grant scholarship as another part of your story, mm-hmm. and, and people, I definitely recommend you read his Washington Post article about his time in Ukraine because it's a fascinating read. Um, there was at no point did you ever think back then with how crazy that those days were. I, I can think you know that's a, everyone tends to ask me about that, and that's a very unique point and time in my life. The reason why I pursue Eastern European studies and language and Russian is something about learning a language that just takes you out of your own zone. And language acquisition for me took me out of my own, I guess, reality. Mm. And when you're speaking and you have to think in someone else's language that's not yours, you're in another world. And so when I'm in Ukraine, if I'm in Russia, if I'm doing all this stuff that I love, I love the culture and language, I'm in a world that's not necessarily reminding me of what I grew up with. And that's the language part, because no one in my hood on Scott speaks Russian. No one speaks Ukrainian. No one speaks Georgian. So, you know, that, and I had a very wonderful experience growing up in Scotland and Detroit, but I, when I was in Russia, I'm in my zone. I really didn't have time to think about it. And then when I came back, it just kind of came back. So you say Slum Village wasn't going to (laughs) be... No, no, no. I didn't roll like that. But yeah, but no, going back to your point, I was always, language, it takes you, it puts you in another world that's not yours and you can, you can reimagine things. Mm -hmm. And you go into the literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, mm-hmm. and if you really learn the language and speak to people, you don't really think about it. So when I was abroad for four years, never came to my mind because I was always someplace else. 
Is your Russian good enough? You can read like Russian literature, like not Russian literature. When at the point where it was really good, my skill set were mostly in speaking, mm. and so now I'm in the process of resurrecting resurrecting it. Now it was good enough to where I could read articles to a point, uh-huh. but I focus more on my on my speaking than my reading. But no, it was very good. I was actually conducting interviews in Russian and everything when that was at its high point. So excellent. Yeah. So now that you're now that you have come out about your experiences and you're starting to share some of your past, how have you? What have you found about the reactions to your? Most people have been overwhelmingly positive. The reactions have been: this is a very brave thing that you do, and I appreciate it. There have been some, on the most part, on the most part, there have been some concerns about opening up about how do people react to you, and some people say, "Well, damn, you talk about this, and you're a reporter, and." What are people going to think? And I tell people, listen, I'm black. That, 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 that's, <laughs> enough to get, that's, that's enough yeah. for people to not be <laughs> interested True. in me alone. It's, so I don't really worry about that. It's actually a point I want to bring up, too, because yeah. in, the way you came out of, uh, like, you went to therapy. And it's something which is not really done by minorities mostly. A lot of times. They don't go, like, it's something which is viewed as... as it's a white thing to do. There's like, a huge just, stigma about yeah. it. Yeah. Like, um, Im- black people, immigrants, everyone. So was there like a stigma you had to overcome to that? Was it like when you told people you were going to therapy, were they like taking it back or something? Ironically, like- I had done a lot of reporting on mental health during the time I was going through this. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. And I was just, I had no problem speaking about the fact that, hey, as a people, we need to go. I had a problem with mm-hmm. myself going. Mm-hmm. And so I take my own advice because I was supposed to be above all that. I was supposed to have my life together. I was supposed to be the person with everything intact and I was solid as a rock. And I wasn't like that and I was crumbling. So it took me the first four months to really accept the fact that I needed to be there. And I was going twice a week. And if you go once, I still go once a week. But if you, anytime you go weekly, it's intensive. And I had to confront a whole lot of issues that I had a hard time accepting. And I'm really getting to the point where I'm okay with it. Thus, me writing this article because going to, number one, I was very fortunate that I had access to therapy through my job. And I have the best of care. And even going to the point of seeing the psychiatrist, which is my next step, it's a lot. And going to a therapist, the best of therapists, the ones I'm very fortunate to have, um, it's anywhere from two to three hundred dollars per session, mm-hmm. and so it's not cheap. I'm very fortunate yeah. to have insurance, so that's the main thing. Number right. two, it's also important to realize that a lot of and a lot of therapy has a lot to do with the partnership. So when you're seeking out a therapist, this person is going to be your friend, and you're telling this person some of the most intimate details in your life, some of which you may not be proud of, some things you may be embarrassed about, and it takes a person. Where that you have a very good relationship and understanding with in order to make that happen. A lot of people in a year and a half go through three or four therapists. I have had the same one since I've started. Mm-hmm. And my therapist specializes in childhood trauma, the same issues that I'm dealing with. So my therapist fits like a glove. And I'm very fortunate to have access by virtue of my insurance. There are some, and there are plenty of resources for people to uh, take advantage of therapy, but they're not as accessible as having insurance through your job to do so a lot of it is because it's just hard for a lot of us to get right, it. economic barriers yeah, exactly. a, lot and of it, yeah. a lot of people who need the most actually don't have access to it right can you imagine if i was working at a fast food place that didn't have ins- that yeah. didn't offer me insurance and i was paying ten dollars an hour so let's just say if i did have insurance right what about that copay 
Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I still have a lot of people yeah. may have insurance, but they, they can't. Don't the yeah. They don't have the copay. Yeah. And I'm fortunate enough where I make enough money where I can actually provide, take care of my copay. Yeah. But it's something I want to discuss more because I'll tell you right now, if it wasn't for me going to therapy, I'm not sure if I could function mm-hmm. and deal with some of the issues I'm dealing with. And I actually need help. And being going to therapy is actually making me my job as a journalist better. I can do my work better. I can focus. I can concentrate. Because dealing with anxiety attacks, as I've dealt with, um, they're very sudden and you don't know when they're going to come. I was out watching a movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, coincidentally, and there was a scene where the guy took off his shirt and there were, there were burns on, on the guy's chest. Came from childhood abuse. That set me off, triggered me, and mm. I, my panic attack lasted about 12 to 14 hours. See, that's another reason not to see Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't have enough reasons yeah, already. Reason. Yeah, so the whole point is that with me, I think... Your, the emotional health for me is just as, as important as going to see uh, your doctor, your yeah. physician. And if I, I remember I went a month without seeing my therapist and I thought that I didn't really need to go. And I had a three, I had a anxiety attack that lasted over a span of three days. And what happens is that your mind, with mine, my chest tightened mm-hmm. up. It felt like someone was just taking their hands, just squeezing my muscles, like squeezing water out of them. It was very agonizing, and I said, okay, I can't do that again. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I continue to go once a week, but I think a lot of our issues behind not going to therapy, even, and I think that's changing, is that we really have to help people navigate the process of going because I actually interviewed nine, eight or nine people. It was very difficult. I had to repeat the same questions. They are going to ask you, why did you try to kill yourself? Um, are you suicidal? All of these issues that are very triggering and, and make you go back to those mo- those darkest moments in your life. And I wish I had somebody there with me to walk through that process. And so even going, taking the first steps are scary. And so I wanted my article to talk about the fact that it's okay to get a support group because you need people every step of the way to help you through it. You talk about in your article. Um, See, Johnny, I want to ask you a question actually oh, to segue wait. a little bit. <laughs> no. I'm in the middle of my question. Oh, yeah, no, finish, finish your point, finish your point. Um, you talk about in your article uh, how it's helped you to have someone who's also part of the minority community. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what, in what way has that helped you? Well, here's, and it's a case by case basis for me. A lot of the stress that I was dealing with at that time was. was dealing with racism that I was experiencing. And I needed a therapist. There's racism in the workplace as well. Yes. Right, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's racism. And I needed someone to talk to about these things and help me to rehash it. And so she was competent in social justice issues. That's the important thing. She not only was somebody who understood the issues of the brain and, and, and psychology, she was versed in social justice and how racism and inequality affects mental health. So she was competent enough to do that too. She, I was used to talking to black women about the most intimate details in my life. And at that moment, I needed somebody who I was used to talking to um, uh, through the worst moments of my life, and that was a black woman. Now, if I were to move forward to another therapist, which I'm satisfied with mine now, so that won't happen, but if I would move on to another therapist, I would have no problem with a black male or some someone like that. Maybe sort of outside of my race, but I think a lot of people, including myself, we like people who, a lot of us want someone who looks like us, and there are studies that show that black people prefer someone 
who looks like them. Yeah. And it's only 2% of mental health professionals that are uh, black Americans or African Americans. So That's crazy. Yeah, so, it, so it's something yeah. that was very critical for me in order for me to go through that process. You know, one thing I noticed as well, too, on, on Twitter, you like you create a community of right. people to support. And I think that like you telling your story has a lot of impact because it lets people know that they're not the only ones feeling sure. this. Right. And that makes such a huge difference because, you know, you feel alone or you feel like to know that people are having these experiences. It gives other people the ability to come forward. And if they need help, they can get help. And like such a stigma and you overcame it. You had a hashtag black suicide yes. and you had a picture on Twitter and you said, you know, I went through this, but I overcame it mm-hmm. and how I did it. Mm-hmm. And that just, uh, you know, it gives people the ability to the courage to step forward and deal, help with their own problems. And, you know, it was, so it's a very brave thing. It has a positive impact as well, too. So definitely commend you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Andrani, I want to segue with you a little bit now because, mm-hmm. uh, there was this issue, like two big stories have come up, which one was directly related to mental health and one was, you know, not directly related to it. But there was one, the plane crash that happened recently where a pilot who the media has reported he was depressed and mm-hmm. that was the reason that uh, he may have helped crash a plane in Europe. As well, there was Otis Bird, who was a black man who was found hanging in uh, Mississippi. Uh, now, with Otis Bird, people, you know, we didn't really know what to make of it initially. And you mentioned that, you know, the suicide angle, the possibility of suicide was immediately discounted. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why you think that was, uh, what was egregious about that? So, the Otis Bird case, uh, he, was, he was a black man found hanging from a tree in Mississippi, found hanging by bedsheets. And um, immediately after it happened, the NAACP said this is a very serious matter. The fact that it happened in Mississippi, we especially need to focus on it. Absolutely true. And so they called for patience from everyone and said, just wait until facts come out. We had no facts. We just had Otis Bird was hanging from a tree. And immediately I started seeing activists, PhD academics, lawyers, law professors calling it a lynching. It was instant. There was zero, no facts were out there. The investigation hadn't even started, but it was immediately called a lynching. And Otis Bird was made into a statistic of white and black violence, which is very much understandable given the current climate that we're living in. But I was, I was incredibly surprised by that, the fact that people were dismissing the idea of a suicide. There was one, um, there was one tweet that I saw that stood out to me. It said, it said something along the lines of, um, so he spent 20 years in prison, Otis Bird spent 20 years in prison, and then killed himself. That literally makes absolutely no sense. This was definitely a lynching. Well, you know, there's always the case with big events, and whenever a big event happens, especially on social media, there's an instant reaction. Yeah. And sometimes people can really go on their first reaction from what they see, and that's always a common thing where they'll react to something and it may not turn out to be maybe the case down the line or whatnot. And sometimes some people would have justified reasons. Sometimes they would just be shooting their shit out of nowhere and they'll say something that they clearly wasn't the case at the end. I think in this instance for sure that, and this is again where you want to always be factual about the stuff, especially with us working in news, you want to be factual and know what's in the bottom line and stuff. I think in regards to people having that initial reaction of lynching, because honestly, like, to tell you the truth, I did as well, is is in regards to just how the past narrative has been not only in mm-hmm. this country, but also in that state, and then seeing the circumstances with him, and then seeing the NAACP be maybe the first of a pro- prominent organization to mention it. 
and having that whole image there and then basically the dynamics of his case in the past and then how he's out of jail. And it just seemed almost like, okay, this seems like someone had revenge on him or something happened here. And the whole picture of basically someone being hung in Mississippi just still stuck in people's heads. And you saw yeah, it in the very, reaction in 2015. Uh, like, this is happening in 2015. Like, right, right. this is 2015. Like, this, this might as yeah. well be in, like, 1915. Right, right. So, you know, that's why even... And now seeing that it could be a suicide overall, that like for some people that have that reaction, especially if they said this does not look good and this looks like what it is or whatever, it's like I gotta say maybe justifiable for some people. But as long as they don't, then still try to make their own facts. If it's proven mm-hmm. to be a suicide, then you know that would be to me more problematic. Well, that's where it got more problematic for me, that I started engaging in discussions with PhD academics about it. And they were saying, even if the federal investigation came out to say it was a suicide, I will not believe it, and it's absolutely a lynching. Because of the the lack of trust in federal investigations, which, again, is understandable. But I think to dismiss something potentially being a suicide, if it was actually a suicide is disrespectful to Otis Bird's story. And it's also perpetuating this false narrative to promote a struggle, which a struggle which is very, very important, white on black violence, but we shouldn't be holding up false narratives to push forward that struggle. Well, I guess the thing that was interesting to me about it was that uh, like when Otis Bird, people didn't immediately jump to the, because I think the Mississippi thing is actually quite compelling because of the history of Mississippi mm-hmm. and like this ongoing violence. But they didn't, it was not foremost in their mind that, you know, you after 20 years of being imprisoned, you'll have great trauma and you'll be at risk for suicide. Exactly. The mental health support is not there. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the the guy who crashed the plane, like, he was just a regular white guy and he crashed the plane and the story was immediately, he was depressed and, like, you know, focusing on his mental state. And I think this just speaks to something else where, like, you know, when certain people commit a crime, there's a political connotation to it, negative or positive. Yeah. Whereas when other people commit a crime, it's all about their mental state and so forth. And, you know, if that guy who crashed a plane, if he had been mentally ill, but he was, like, Muslim, oh, oh my God, the Man. coverage would have been incredible. Yeah, 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 I was talking about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, that's, and I think that's the whole thing. When we put both of these stories in context, they're very unique. I think the reactions, particularly towards Bird, have much less to do with denying the fact that he could have committed a suicide. Uh, there is an extreme distrust with how the media frames yeah. our narratives. And I think that is the knee-jerk reaction. So I don't even think it's an issue of activists having a mistrust towards the federal government and how it carries out its investigations, because I think a lot of people took that Ferguson report, for example, and the in the report out of Cleveland, and numerous reports that talk about police brutality and outline the abuses. People felt like those were documents from the government that proved that the racism is very much... 2015 the bird case it was more of okay people are just going to immediately sweep under the rug that this person could have been murdered even though very much it could have been you know very as we look here i'm looking at the latest report that it's looking like a suicide Mm -hmm. but i think it's an emotional reaction to the fact that i'm just really worried that this case is not going to be covered correctly and in the case with the the gentleman who the pilot who uh, crashed the plane I was online engaging that as well because what we noticed immediately that the media, without really having all the facts, okay, that's the whole thing because mm-hmm. no one, have we spoken to this man's family? 
Have we spoken? Do we have yeah. his medical record? Do we know have anything? We, do we I know anything? Yeah. And, and I saw numerous headlines that said the government is ruling out, well, um, there's no chance of of um, terrorism. Now, remember the guy, the, the gentleman who were flying the Indonesia yeah. um, plane? I think even to this day, people are just kind of the flowing around the idea yeah. that this was a terrorist act, even though we have no proof that this person has any mm-hmm. terrorist activity whatsoever. I mean, and the media tried and they tried and they tried and they tried. Visit this man's family, <laughs> yeah. wherever he was, and no one could find anything about terrorism, but it's still floating around. Yeah, and just a real quick, just to end on that note, yeah. you saw Pat, because uh, I ignore him because he's a comedy show and whatnot, but I mm-hmm. saw people tweet about Pat, Pat Robinson's comment in regards to asking Maybe the pilot was Muslim, and and, yeah. and, and, and you see that right there once yeah. again. Always trying to tie it in in regards to whether this person was a brown Muslim, and he's doing this or whatever. Because this is the only way. Because saying white people wouldn't be able to do this or whatnot, so we have to speculate. Just have to yeah. speculate a bit, yeah. and you would never see the other way around. But then you speculate. Well, maybe he was white, or maybe she was white. Yeah. So it's just once again that same old tired dichotomy that still continues, no matter what right. tragedy and clearly what the evidence is. Right. You know, before we just uh, wrap up and go to tell me something good, I just want to make, you know, I want to bring a point, point you brought up earlier as well, too, because you said that, you know, if you've been working in a job which didn't support you enough to do uh, therapy, yeah. you know, where would you be? You'd be adrift. Oh, absolutely. This is a big part what what capitalism actually contributes to mental health among people. Oh, because yes. In two ways, because first, you're economically stressed, mm-hmm. and many people are, mm-hmm. and which adds to your general mental stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, it causes breakdowns of families because people atomize working all over the place, sending people in whichever direction. Maybe at work 18 hours a day. Uh, you don't have someone to talk to because your family's yeah. not around for this reason. And, you know, it all kind of, you know, adds on to each other. So I think it's like the society is designed in a way to engender mental health. And if you're a minority, it's yeah. doubly or triply so. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. so we go to tell me something good now. Oh, we just uh, say so positive angle now. <laughs> uh, I, I can't... Well, we can't talk about my, my New York Knicks, so that's, oh, that's, that's, oh, no. that's not that's not. Uh, they beat the Spurs recently. But um, yeah, that is true. Though. That is true. Like, but that's us messing up our tanking, though. But, <laughs> but 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 on a good note, like, it's no event related thing. But I, I wanted to give a shout out to um, two women that were able to get out of Yemen last week. That was really like a, a interesting story. I think on the radar where um, um, Yemeni tribesmen last Thursday they were able to get. Um, French woman named Isabel Primi and um, her translator Shireen Makawi out of um, out of basically being endangered tribal men, and they just actually freed her. So freed both of them. So that's something that you know, especially with what's going on now, disastrous Yemen has turned into thanks to not only inside sectarianism but also outsideism. Um, U.S., Saudi Arabia, UAE. That's something that's like a rare positive story in the midst of a lot of madness. Yeah, definitely. Terrell, tell me something yeah, good. Yeah, so right now I am working on, I'm reading a book called Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder, and it's really a an intense historiography of the abuses carried out by Stalin and Hitler uh, during their reigns. And I am going to start writing about Russia, and I'm developing this concept, concept called Russian supremacy. And trying to pick, you know, uh, connected to what we consider white supremacy here in the United States. And I want to talk about racism and how different kinds of whiteness traffic within the former Soviet Union. And this book that I'm reading, uh, Bloodlands, is a very fascinating journey uh, through that period, basically between 
1920 to 1950, and uh, it's it's really enthralling, and I hope that everyone gets an opportunity to read it so they can be as excited about it as I am, if you're a history buff. Sounds excellent. Yeah. And Johnny, tell me something good. Uh, mine is so tangential. But um, <laughs> this morning I found a really good uh, Tumblr post called Rupi Carr, or Kaur, I don't know how to pronounce it, R-U-P-I-K-A-U-R.com. And um Core. Oh, no. okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, she is a British photojournalist who is changing the narrative of how, challenging the narrative of how uh, men view women on their periods, mm-hmm. which I really encourage people to view. So basically, you know, we live in the society where if a woman tells a man that she's on a period, it becomes, that's too much information. And oh, shit, you're incredibly man. uncomfortable by it. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I check back next week. Or yeah. <laughs> so, and, and as, women, as women, if we carry like tampons in our bag or something, then we're afraid that a man's going to pick up our bag and find out our little secret and things. Right. So um, Rupi has started this Tumblr, which challenges all of that and the photography that she's put up on there is very, very interesting. And I challenge people to go onto that website and to not be comfortable with the discomfort that they will inevitably feel by looking at these photographs. Very interesting. Mm. All right, I'll tell, I'll tell something good too. I'm reading a book right now. It's called Al-Qaeda and What It Means to Be Modern. And basically the premise of the book is comparing Muslim terrorism or Islamism, quote-unquote, with... Uh, contemporary European fascist movements, anarchism, communism, because actually the, these ideas, most of them don't draw from Islamic history, they draw from 19th and 20th century European revolutionary movements, like killing a huge number of people to remake society, this idea of revolutionary vanguards and global uprisings, they have nothing to do, they're, you know, they're not drawn from Islamic history or texts per se. A lot of these tactics come from these uh, other movements such as, you know, fascism, and uh, anarchism, and essentially it's kind of unpacking the idea that uh, ISIS and these groups are medieval. They're really not. They're modern, but they use medieval symbols and uh, justifications in pursuance of a modern utopian project, and that's... uh, that's what I'm into right now. What a mini books on your yeah, you got yeah, you gotta you gotta give me that name again. So I'm oh yeah, you can, I'll just do what I'm done. If you want, but I'll give you the name if you want. To. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm still reading mine, so once okay, you get sure, yeah. it, I'll give it to me. Thank you. Uh, can I just add one thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I didn't get to go into the full thing of what I wanted to talk about with H.S. Bird, but if anyone wants to continue this discussion, I lived in Mississippi and I work on the defense teams for individuals facing the death penalty in the U.S. So I have a lot of strong views on this. If anyone wants to continue the discussion. Find me on Twitter. Hey, listen, we, need, we need to organize a time so we can talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's I'm gonna do a Mars and engage with everyone yeah. who tweets me. Let's do it. We will have to continue it, but do the sponsors allocation. Definitely. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank, thank you everyone for joining us this week. It's another episode of Mars and Juan. Hopefully, we'll be back next week. Uh, I'm Maz and I'm not Juan. It's Andrew, and uh, hopefully, Juan will be back next week. Take care. Bye. Right, that was cool.